0: You're listening to BAU Business as Unusual. The podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organizations, and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact.
1: Gavin Morris does a full circle for us. We spoke with Judy Atkinson not long ago. And if you haven't graced years with that, recommend going back in the catalogue of a BAU podcast and listening to that, but judy sent us gavin's phd as a prerequisite to read before interviewing her and today we're lucky enough to hear gavin's story and he fleshes out a lot of his work and, and why he carried out his work and we understand that it's three white guys sitting down talking about aboriginal affairs but to be honest it's it's white fellas that have put a lot of the we'll put a, most of the atrocities on Aboriginal community here in Australia, so it's something that we do need to think about and, and think deeply
2: about how to change. So I think it's a relevant conversation that we should air, and and Gavin does it so well. He does, he does, and you know I think it's it's interesting. Like so, Gavin's gone from being uh, an NRL referee to kind of being really in the midst. I think of of refereeing. A much bigger and and much more important, no offense to the NRL, um, piece of, um, you know, kind of Australiana in that, you know, what he really kind of puts forward is that this notion around decision making and I think, you know, the fact that um, the Now You community functioned perfectly well even post-colonialization when it actually had the ability to make its own decisions and be able to actually be self-directive. And, you know, I think as the conversation unfolds, it's really interesting about how his work actually explored this idea of kind of truth-telling and be, being much more, I think, taking a methodology um, that is Aboriginal-based, but then being able to actually paint a picture that, you know, as Gavin uh, says himself, that the white fellas could actually hear. It's it's incredibly powerful. You know, in places, it's, it's frankly, it's sad and it's appalling in terms of actually what's, what's happened. But I think, you know, from anyone who's interested really in our country and our future, I think, you know, the work that people like Gavin are doing is is vital and, you know, really kind of challenging this notion that, um, you know, we're giving decision making back. Whereas I think what Gavin points out quite rightly is who the hell were we to take it in the first place?
1: 100%. And one thing I wanted to add was we're talking about this in the midst of COVID-19. And and people are struggling with isolation and and feeling that powers are being taken off them, and je- and just spare a minute for when we get into the conversation with Gavin and understand and and cross that across Aboriginal Australian experience and understand how much power's been taken off them for so long. I think it's a pointy time to hear that story. As per the reading of the conversation, what struck me with your PhD was the methodology and the process behind your study. Before we get into that, though, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about where you are and, and what you've been up to.
3: Yeah, sure. So um, I actually had a job referee professionally in the National Rugby League as a rugby league referee. So I was refereeing first grade in Sydney um, for quite a few years, 160-odd games, and um, always had a background in uh, the outback. Um, I come from country Queensland. I've got a couple of um, daughters who are in their 20s who are both from Torres Strait Island, so always had that um, as an interest in a background and thought that with the two younger girls that we wanted to spread our wings and give them a childhood, which reflected a bit more of our childhood as kids. Um, so I uh, decided to uh, hand back the NRL contract um, and moved from inner city Sydney to a remote Aboriginal community in Northern Territory called Daly River. And it's also it's also known as uh, Now You Never You. Um, so we moved there as a school teacher. School teaching is my background when I wasn't uh, a professional athlete and uh, worked in the school um, as part of the leadership executive, um, mainly in relation to behaviour management. I taught a little bit of physical education as well, but It was through the behavior management and setting up trauma-informed practice where i ran into judy atkinson um and we first met um but it also allowed me to set up the relationships with parents and the broader community really quickly because i was dealing with you know the point to the end of the school in relation to um behavior management and student well-being and pastoral care and all those things so it really put me at the at the coalface in building relationship with the community and from there um I was invited to partake in a, a, a storytelling. It, it was, well, the the, the your community wanted to do a truth-telling, and I was in a very portion situation where I was trusted enough um, for, to capture those stories, and from an academic point of view, I'd done enough leading up to that point to get myself qualified in a PhD program um, because the community was really keen to have this published in a way that, the white fellows would listen. And um, so they're, they're really keen to have a Western style document which packed a few punches, contained their truth telling, but also opened the doors to the people who made it. So that's how the PhD came to be. Um, I've completed it um, uh, March of last year. It got approved later in the year. Um, I've currently moved, I've, I've subsequently um, moved into. Uh, Darwin, where I now work full time with Charles Darwin University in the College of Education, and in constant, um, I'm constantly travelling to and from the Now You community. I'm doing a range of projects and different things with them, um, including stuff that's directly linked with the PhD and stuff much broader than that. Um, So it's, yeah, it's a real privilege. I'm in a really privileged position and I take nothing for granted.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. Gavin, can you take us, um, you know, can you take us actually into the Now You community, and maybe just paint a picture for the listener around, you know, the really kind of the the, the kind of the, one the region, the kind of landscape, but I think more the social dynamic that you actually found in Daily River, and you know, and I think also why um, this community actually wanted its truth to be told in a way that um, I guess uh, you know, the kind of the white man could actually understand. So Daly River,
3: uh, or now you, is a two-and-a-half-hour drive southwest of Darwin. So you drive down the Stuart Highway for an hour, you get to the Adelaide River turn-off, uh, and then you drive basically another hour-and-a-half westward uh, towards Daly River. Very difficult to get to during the wet season, but in the dry, it's fine. It's a sealed road uh, once you get into community, uh, it's like, the community itself has had three or four different established sites around where it currently lies, all of which on the, the banks of the Daly River. It's uh subsequently it's exposed to significant flooding events. So when we first got to Daly River in two uh, in the summer of two thousand and sixteen, it had, it had just had a significant flood. Eighty percent, ninety percent of the houses had water up to the roof. The school yeah, had wow. significant flooding damage. Um, so it's, the, the It's very exposed to the elements. It's a beautiful community. It's a community of around 350 people. That fluctuates depending on the time of the year. Like many Catholic missions, of which Now You is one, it's made up of several language groups and tribal groups. So from the 350 people, there is 12 language groups, which makes things uh, complex in terms of Mm. political dynamic and so forth. Uh, the community itself is quite a beautiful community, in in terms of because it's on the banks of the Daly River. Uh, it's got a, uh, a twenty-four, you know, it's got a twenty-four hour day, twelve months of the year water supply. Whereas some of the other communities around the territory uh, are reliant on the wet season for greenness and access to water. Daly doesn't have that issue, so um, very beautiful place to live and close proximity to Darwin. The reason why Daly was really interested in their truth-telling is because uh, their journey, basically. So they've been very successful in developing a self-governing, um, self-determination, um, uh, making their own decisions. Uh, this is a a community which has built itself. So um, le- leading up to the intervention, the Northern Territory Emergency Response, which was triggered by... Uh, John Howard and Mel Bruff on the on the eve of the election of that year. The Nauru community had its own local council. It, it had its own um, total governance. It had, had several million dollars in the account. Uh, Claire Martin, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory at the time, um, was in the press saying that this is one of the shining lights. This is the example of what of, of success looks like in Aboriginal communities. It had 100% employment. It had 100% school attendance. They had uh, what they used to call walking tickets. And a walking ticket was um, something that local decision makers gave out to people who, if you weren't employed and you should have been, they asked you if you had a good reason, yes or no. And if you, if you didn't have a good response, you were giving a walking ticket, which is basically your, your invitation to leave the community. So this was a very highly functioning community and was devastated in 2007 by the intervention, the Northern Territory Emergency Response. And then in 2008, it was further decimated by um, local government amalgamating all local councils into larger super shires. So whereas in 2000, leading up to 2008, Prior to the amalgamation of the shires, now you had its own, uh, its its own mayor, its own decision-making capacity, its own budget, its own economy, its own employment. Everything was handled in and with the community. Uh, 2008, uh, those decision-making capacities were removed. The economy collapsed. Unemployment went from almost zero to virtually 100 percent. And those jobs which were lost. In the community, were then outsourced to non-indigenous service providers um, outside of community. So, this isn't the first time that they've had this collapse of economy and in, in, uh, in unemployment. There was another event in ninety in, in the seventies with the Whitlam Award wages legislation, but that probably goes beyond what we need to discuss today. So, <laughs> yeah. um, these are very high high functioning community. Um, they know what it takes to do well, to succeed, to walk in both worlds. And twice now they've had the rug pulled out underneath them. And currently, since 2008, so it's been 12 years. Um, it's it's sit down money. It's almost zero employment, and the community have had enough. Mm. So that was the the motivation behind the truth telling. And whilst I sort of you know described a lot of economic and unemployment issues, the truth telling goes far beyond that.
1: Mm. And, you, and you talk a lot about in your PhD, your approach and, and the way that you go about um, tackling this PhD. Obviously, you're in a very privileged position coming into the community to witness and document a truth-telling and then use a academic rigor for a specific community use. Can you tell us how that worked and also how your study was guided specifically by a committee?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, for your listeners, I'm uh, a middle class, middle age, non-Indigenous male. Um, so basically the Antichrist of what we're talking about here. So when I was asked to sit in the centre of a truth telling of an Aboriginal community who were willing to share the stories with me on the basis of the relationships that I built, I was obviously in a really privileged space. So it was really important for me to acknowledge the fact that this was um, uh, uh, an Indigenous-led project. I was responding to a community need. And it was important then that I acknowledged and privileged as much as I could all aspects of Aboriginal concept, knowledge, worldviews, values, uh, methodologies, uh, all those things in relation to the way that this research was designed. So... The easiest way for me to do that was to create a uh, Indigenous-based community reference group, which was uh, made up of key elders, emerging leaders, you know, some young people, some of the key elders and some of the old people. It was important that we got a cross-section of the community in relation to representing, you know, as many of the language groups as we could. And to be fair, the community designed its own selected its own reference group to a large extent and then it was um, a, a constant conversation between myself, the university in terms of sort of the institutional supervisors that you sort of had to you have to tight walk between the two worlds but it was that reference group who designed uh, it to a large extent that the research questions, the research design, they monitored and um, my research conduct to make sure that I was uh, constant and privileging in uh, Aboriginal worldviews and, and and the views of the community in the way that the stories are being um, uh, created and collected and then how that how they were expressed. So that community reference group I am in great debt to, um, and it was those guys, um, male and female, who directed the research design. And from there, what we did is we we decided to at every opportunity. Uh, if we had a choice between uh, privileging something from the west or privileging something that was um indigenous based we uh led led heavily towards privileging aboriginal knowledges so from a research methodology point of view, there was a number of ways that could have collected the stories but we ended up we ended up um deciding to use um a, an aboriginal concept called darditty Darditty is an aboriginal concept of the nungi Kurunko people which um, to be fair is probably uh, located in Memorial River they, that tribe is a little bit to the west of the of the current Na community but Nungi, Nungi is a significant language group within the Na community so we use da as a aboriginal concept of, of deep listening it 's got a whole bunch of principles in relation to how you' it 's community centered um, uh, reciprocal obligations in terms of giving and taking. Uh, It's got a whole bunch of principles that really align well to um, ethical research on one hand, but also guiding and collating really important data on the other. So in the end, we've used an Aboriginal Indigenous research methodology on the country and with the people to which it belongs. And from that point of view, it's quite a unique PhD. And... I was really cautious not then to try to prop that uh, Dar Didi up with Western research methodologies, in a sense, basically acknowledging the fact that if by doing so you're saying da not rigorous enough as a research methodology to send us on his own two feet and it needs propping up from the West. So as much as possible, we sent the Dar Didi. It was a part of, it was a, a, a healing practice identified by participants. Uh, it was a research methodology, it framed so much of the PhD, and probably the spokesperson for Dar Didi, um Dr Miriam Rose Ungerman-Boorman, is who is a key elder in community, uh, was also a key aspect, a key person in the way that this research was designed.
1: And what was the end result that uh, was hoped for, or to be used? What did they want the PhD, or what did you understand the PhD was hoping to achieve?
3: Well, initially, uh, beyond anything else, the DALU community wanted their voice heard. That was the primary motivation of the PhD and the truth-telling. They wanted to be heard. On on a couple of occasions now, they've got themselves off off their knees, off the ground, by themselves with, with very little support and bought into the Western European style of living and life and have done it really successfully only to have the rug pulled out underneath them now on multiple occasions. And they felt like that that had gone unheard, that their voice was now diminished, particularly since the intervention in in, in 07 and 08 with the amalgamation of the Shire. All the the decision-making capacity had had vanished overnight. And they've had a gutful, basically. So uh, primarily it was a a truth-telling in terms of having a voice and being heard. Uh, And secondly, it was, they wanted documented the impact of colonisation, the impact of white settlement that was a unique experience to the now you community, documented in writing uh, in a form which packed a punch with the people who mattered. And from their point of view, that was, that was government officials, decision makers, bureaucrats, um, people who they saw as the ones who came in, switched the lights off and all the decision making left it was this is this was their opportunity to document what has happened since white settlement yeah
2: and, um, Gavin, you also touch on that, um, you know, the kind of the idea that there's quite a few things that are actually in practice in terms of that actually inhibit the the cultural, I guess, kind of um, healing that's actually going through. And one of the things you actually point out in the thesis is around the fact that kind of the, the colonial, how colonial the actual Australian medical model is. And you make a really strong and compelling case that that actually needs to change if we're going to actually be able to create any type of reconciliation in this country. And I'm just wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about that and why you believe that to be so important.
3: It was one of the key findings of the PhD and uh, the reason why you used RGD and you you, you privileged all those Aboriginal worldviews and values and so forth, is that then you don't have to sort of cast your own lens or interpretation over the findings. So the, the findings of the PhD are as close to the Aboriginal voice as possible and that was, that, was, that was really important. One of the key findings of the PhD is the fact that um, uh, colonisation in the now you experience has made significant impacts in terms of health, um, social um, aspects, uh, certainly in relation to access to traditional healing practices which had been practiced for so long in that region had been basically diminished and cast aside for a, a western biomedical primary health care model which uh, wasn't working and there's, there's countless um, uh, 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 quotes from participants and stories from participants who uh, ignored the, it, wouldn't, wouldn't go to the clinic because they were worried that, that they couldn't understand what was being said. It was, it was It was culturally inappropriate um, uh, and uh, it, it didn't acknowledge a Aboriginal holistic view of health. Uh, so they're walking into a place that was quite foreign their their world views and knowledges weren't privileged Uh, and and for quite a few of them they were walking into a clinic and this isn't entirely the the fault of the clinic but they were walking into the clinic not knowing whether they're going to walk out in the same day or whether they're going to get a a care flight to Darwin uh, for renal dialysis or some sort of ongoing treatment where they were required to stay in outreach centres while they get located a lot closer to to hospital settings for more serious issues, so uh, there, there was a range of issues around uh, racist um, power imbalance, Aboriginal worldviews weren't acknowledged, and a primary health setting where where everyone was doing their best and the intent and the motivation from everyone involved was was unquestionable, but it came at the expense of traditional healing practice. And one of the key findings out of the phd was this concept of an ancient university and the ancient university uh, was described by multiple uh, participants in relation to offering a traditional a space where traditional healing practices could be privileged and that wasn't in a primary health setting uh, it, uh, participants were clear that you couldn't have the two going side by side the traditional health uh traditional healing practices would get uh, migrate themselves into the back corner of the clinic and out of sight and out of view where uh, the participant is really clear that it's actually university had a real healing function in terms of not only providing healing capacity for those who need it particularly from the trauma of colonisation but also has a, a preservation factor where it preserves traditional knowledges and traditional healing practices in a way that it wouldn't need to conform or mould or, or or bend to Western, the, the Western biomedical model. So this actually university was a really important finding from the from the PhD uh, in terms of privileging traditional healing practices, preserving those knowledges, but it had other functions as well in terms of um, uh, education and training and employment, which all go hand in hand with um, that holistic view of Aboriginal wellbeing.
1: Yeah, you you sum that up so well, and and capture a lot of the documents in your PhD or the data or the stories um, really well in that in that argument that you put forward there, and and it's well worth if if listeners have a time uh, to read through that and understand that more deeply and how it affects people going into a doctor's might not be the same for you as someone else. Um, I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about. Has there been, it's obviously just completed your work, but has there been any carry-on effect of this? Has the ears of decision-makers um, been privy to the work that you've put out there, and, and what are the strategies to, to get those ears there?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's very much an evolving piece of work, and it, it's, it was my responsibility as much as anyone else's to ensure that these stories which form this PhD didn't become a doorstop It's an impressive document and I'm very proud of it, but it's full of stories that deserve to be far, far greater uh, exposure than um, a a pat on the back and a a good truth telling and people felt that they were heard. And then after that, it was a, it was, you know, a doorstop. In actual fact, what's happened is there's been a real evolution of stuff coming from and through the PhD. Uh, I was only asked earlier this week to provide some of the findings in the coronial inquest into a couple of Aboriginal suicide suicides of young girls. I think one was 12, one was 14. Um, there's uh, certainly been presented in a number of different forums in relation to Aboriginal health settings uh, in tertiary uh, institutions within the Northern Territory. I know, I believe it's La Trobe. Uh, it's certainly Victorian University who have um, structured their... Uh, a, a, a whole course around wellbeing in relation to the way that the, the PhD is set out. So they've got a, a whole unit, um, sorry, in in relation to um, one of their wellbeing or um, uh, uh, units, and it's set out using the the, the same structure as the PhD. Um, it, yeah, week by week, there's something coming out of it, and um, it, it, it it's, it's attracting funding in terms of some grants, which is is really exciting, Uh, but it's it's certainly a work in progress and uh, it's opening the doors to a range of stakeholders, in particular, those from the West who are sitting in decision-making positions around how to deal with the impact of colonisation and the trauma associated with it to this point but also how to work with an Aboriginal community in a way that enhances self-determination, gives Aboriginal people the centre for decision-making. And because it was really clear that the Daly River community, despite the fact that it has this endless evidence that the impact of colonisation has caused the trauma associated with violence, drug use, alcohol um, uh, use, the suicide and on it goes, the daily community were very clear that they owned their own stories. They own their own what's happened till now. That they, the dysfunction and the stuff that's happening daily, which are not proud of, they're happy to own it. They, they're also really clear that they, they are the ones who own the solutions. The solutions to the problems in the now your community uh, can be found within the community. We don't need, uh, um, outside non-Indigenous service provision to go in to make decisions on on their behalf so and this document is a nice example of how you can do that in a way which produces an outcome which is pretty special in the ter- in, in relation to some of the stories which have been shared you know some of these participants would say Gavin look what I'm about to share with you this is the first time I've actually mentioned this to anyone uh, this is something that is come from a a really dark place from many years ago. So the stories encapsulated within this larger PhD uh, are really privileged. And this is a nice example of how you can work with community, uh, respond to a community need in a way that centres Aboriginal knowledges, increases and enhances Aboriginal self-determination and decision-making.
0: You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. The podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organizations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts... Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organizations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them, and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations.
2: Yeah, Gavin, and can you uh, can you unpack for us a bit why giving decision making back is so critical to actually kind of reestablishing these communities. I mean, it's, you know, I think, you know, you you said before that, you know, the the now you community was actually at 100% employment, was actually um, determining its own fate. But I'm just, if you can just take us through why giving back the power to make your own decisions is so critical in terms of actually restoring um, these communities back to where they could go in the the light of kind of what um, colonialization has actually created for the indigenous people of Australia. Yes.
3: One of the great strengths of colonisation is the is it is is the ability of European people to come in, take over, um, take land, take decision making, take governance, take everything. Um, and its paternalistic nature, it's, it's it's actually quite effective in doing that. And that that still remains the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my experience, I've found very few examples of. Uh, successful intervention where local decision-making processes were diminished and replaced with not in, outside, non indigenous uh, governance and 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 service delivery and decision-making. Um, and I, I just those those examples of that being successful are few and far between. Um, it's very clear now, and this PhD centres that, but by 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 no means is this frontier work in terms of acknowledging the fact that one of the most important things in terms of turning um, these communities around is to give them decision making. But what we need to do is probably take a step back from this gentlemen. in relation to these missions were set up precisely to take away, to remove decision making capacity. So missions were, by all mm. intents and purposes, places yep. where Aboriginal children were sent to mm. go and um, participate in Western catholic schoolings and they're not all catholic missions but daily and now you certainly was and these missions were set up in relation to uh, removing all aboriginal governance and decision making and self-determination and then uh, training and molding the younger generation into into being good catholics and into um, participating in the the western european um, market and society and having Aboriginal children reflect the values of their European masters. That, that, that was why they, that was the centre of, of and, and the, the central motivation of these missions to be established. The reserves are the same, uh, have the same motivations. Okay. So by definition, um, missions, whether they're Catholic or not, were initially designed to remove all the stuff that we're talking about. So, um, to, to consider, that this, the same people in the same places can go forward um, in, in any capacity without the decision making, governance and self-determination returned back to the people to which it belongs is absurd. Uh, and, I, I, you know, uh, to be fair to the Catholic mission of, of Daly River, certainly the experience of the people in that mission is far different to some of the others in the Northern Territory in, in around Australia. Uh, it's certainly very different to the, to the missions in Kananara, for example, Palm Island in Queensland, uh, uh, Yarrabah in Queensland. Um, there's a Garden Point on, uh, in, on the, in the Tiwi Islands, who was, who was set up almost primarily as to be the, the capture of children from the stolen generation. That wasn't the case in Daly River. The participants spoke quite highly of the treatment in the mission, but by definition, these were places where Uh, Aboriginal children would become good Catholics, would take on their religion and and these are the most Catholic regions in Australia to this day. Make no mistake about that and that's supported by fact through the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics. But the whole idea of them was to remove uh, Aboriginal worldviews and values and replace them with uh, the capacity to walk and work and and reflect society that came from the West.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's not. Yeah, there's not. There's nothing really to kind of build upon. That is there. I mean, I think it's you know, the point you make is that how how on earth do we believe that, you know, that we've, one, we've kind of taken away the decision making, but then we've actually kind of transferred that and actually taken people away from the very community that actually allowed them to feel free and be able to actually, you know, feel part of something. And then we look at it as if it's, this is something that kind of, you know, is in giving back, we have a role to kind of set how they can actually make decisions. I think that's, you know, and, you know, really kind of powerful takeout. Of the work, yeah, exactly. of the work that you've actually looked at, is that you know it's what what even gives us the perspective that this is something we're almost giving back. If I'm hearing you correctly, Gavin, it's something that is theirs that we took.
3: Yeah, exactly. And the colonizers, and you know, I, I, let's be fair. I, I represent that group of people. Hmm. Colonizers still operate in these communities. Yeah, it's not like that. A war happened. Um, there was a, there was a massacre. You know, in, in other areas of the one, people often say, well, Gavin, why can't the Aboriginal people just get over it? It happened years ago, it happened centuries ago. Well, and, and part of the reason for that is there hasn't been an acknowledgement um, of, of an, a, a, a true testament of, of, of the history that's, that's where, to where we are today. That, that's the first issue. But the second one, the, con, the, the people who represent colonisation still work in these communities and actually are the ones profiteering out of keeping Aboriginal communities in the state that they're in. So I, I, I mentioned earlier around the fact that Daly River uh, built its community entirely by its own hands. So every, every building in the Nauru in the community was built by the Aboriginal labor force within the community, which is the reason why, uh, uh, it, it, it also had its own maintenance program. So this was a very sophisticated workforce. And it's the reason why that in Daly River houses aren't burnt down and broken down and pulled down because it was built by those people who are currently living in those in those dwellings. As a result of that, though, there hasn't been a new building, a new dwelling built in Daly River in 20 years. So uh, it's just another example of of uh, when those local jobs and that local labor force and that that skilled workforce were totally wiped out. Those jobs then were given to the colonizers, to the outsiders, to non-indigenous service providers in Darwin and other places around the country. Um, And those people are making a great profit. And, and there's many people profiteering out of making sure that Aboriginal communities don't progress further than where they are. uh, we need to be very clear that Aboriginal communities want self-governance; they want self-determination. But we also need to be very clear that the people who caused this mess to begin with are actually still living in these communities, and I represent part of that group. Yeah. I, mm. I mean, I, I opened my PhD with with uh, a, a little a little paragraph from from um, Edward Wilson. In, 19, in, in 1856, and there's more contemporary versions of this. That, uh, this was a widely acknowledged, accepted point of view, which uh, was part of the Australian narrative. Um, and it, it has been going forward. And if you, if you can bear with me, it's a, it's a short passage, but I, I, I think it's worth going through. And it states, in less than 20 years, we have nearly swept them off the face of the earth. We have shot them like dogs. In the guise of friendship, we have issued corrosive sublimate in their damper and consigned whole tribes to the agonies of an excruciating death. We have made them drunkards and infect them with diseases which have rotted the bones of their adults and made such few children as are born amongst them a sorrow and a torture from the very instant of their birth. We have made them outcasts on their own land and are rapidly consigning them to an entire annihilation. This is that quote. It was is on is on the public record. Any any research around the Northern Territory news over the last 150 years will show headlines on the front page celebrating this type of narrative. Uh, and
1: yeah, so, to get that clear for the listeners, who will be shocked by that. that that is a headline that is celebrating that fact. It's not commiserating that fact.
3: Correct. Exactly right. Exactly right. So this was a widely held position that this is exactly what should be happening. The quicker it happens, the better. Tasmania and Queensland were seen as the, the real pioneers in terms of uh, accelerating the extermination of Aboriginal people and, and it was their policies by which were used as models around Western Australia, the Northern Territory. And uh, make no mistake, Western research uh, in those times and going forward was entirely designed to capture an Aboriginal race which was designed to be exterminated. We need to quickly do as much research on them as possible prior to their extermination so we can send it back to England to to capture as much information as possible. And that's the foundation by which uh, Western research and researchers find themselves today. And we need to acknowledge the place in Western research. We need to acknowledge where we've come from to do ethical research in aboriginal communities today
2: fantastic evan and i mean i think you've done so much to actually help um, turn the tide on that in terms of the work that you've actually put together in terms of actually you know really kind of working through um you know a, a practice that is actually based off of what um you know really what the first peoples were actually putting down and it's it's their story and you've helped them capture that I mean, I think just lastly before we before we close today, Gavin. I mean, what's kind of struck me throughout this conversation, um, and if I can be so bold, is that you've kind of gone from being a referee in the NRL. You've kind of then gone into a kind of a, a community and actually helped referee referee that. But I'm I'm interested in kind of what, what's next for you, and you know how do you, you know, kind of you know how do you kind of keep um, you know I guess kind of being the fair referee that actually helps um, you know make sure that both sides of this actually play to the rules.
3: Yeah, it's a nice analogy. I hadn't considered that. Thank you. Uh, Look, certainly to promote uh, the the voices which come through this PhD to its greatest capacity is my motivation uh, in life, particularly in the short term. Uh, The actual university concept, working really hard and developing the networks and the funding and everything else that goes along with that to to make that happen. I'm working in uh, multiple Aboriginal communities, but specifically within you around a whole bunch of sporting, social, economic um, projects and initiatives, um, you know, primarily just being a good human. Um, I've taken a position in Charles Darwin University in the College of Education uh, because that opens a lot of doors to have this stuff heard. So my colleagues now are deans of places, um, sit on middle managements and have decision-making capacities in institutions where this stuff... When you put this in front of them, it, it actually makes a difference. That's my, that's, that's my goal. That, that's, that's my motivation going forward. I'm all, I will always be indebted to the Now You community forever. Um, part of the, part of my motivation is to give back because I, uh, I feel so indebted to be trusted to, to be placed in the position to, to capture the story. But it's, um, I, I hope I've portrayed uh, the 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 truth telling from a uh, from a real strength based perspective. I'm, I just want to make make sure your listeners are really clear. This this wasn't a horror story or um, mm. uh, a story of victimisation or a story of making excuses or stories of you know I don't want to do things because look at what you've done to me. It's quite the opposite of that. This is a very much a strength based piece of research. There, not not once was there. One participant who made excuses for poor behaviour or for uh, not acknowledging culture or for disrespecting elders or for the things that have happened in community which have resulted from colonisation that are outside their control. It was the opposite of that. It was uh, it, it was an educational, almost an educational journey where participants were able to go. Now that I understand what this trauma does to people. I understand now the way that I think and the way that I am and the way that I feel. And because that, I understand that now, I've got a pathway forward. And it was a resilience. The, the, the resilience of the Nauru community is extreme. And despite everything that's happened to them, there was, there was no stories of I'm a victim. There was no stories of deficit. It was very much a strength-based narrative around this is our truth-telling. We want our voices heard and we want that because we want to move forward to the next step. And part of that next step is the concept of ancient university and I will be doing everything that I can in my world um, to be an enabler in that space. And that's not talking on behalf of Aboriginal, uh, it's talking for um, Aboriginal people, it's, it's talking with them, it's talking on their behalf and if I could be an advocate for the now you voice in places... In the West, including institutions like universities, then I'm happy to do so.
1: Beautiful. I'm so glad um, you mentioned that about it being very much a strength. I think you can get bogged down in um, in the narrative of such the atrocities that have happened and continue to happen. But your your PhD really does talk to that strength and understanding and learning from. How trauma does inform um, decisions, and also learning from that truth telling is, is powerful. I wanted to quickly ask before we close if if people can access your PhD, and if you wanted to point them in a specific area, if they wanted to read a little bit, or if they wanted to find out more.
3: Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can contact me by email, Gavin Morris at cdu.edu.au. I believe my that um, there's there's a a, a 18 month period where there's before it, the, the PhD itself gets released to Google Scholar and places like that, I'm happy to share it with people. Uh, so, I'll, I want to get this out to as many people as I can so uh, I'm um, more than happy to share it. Make contact with me by email uh, also. So, yeah, there's, there's a little embargo which universities place on things um, which is coming to the end of that. So, if people want the full document, more than happy to share it. Please make contact with email and I'm and I'm happy to further this conversation as much as I can with people who are interested or have interest in this. So, um, very privileged and um, for the for the invite today, gentlemen. And hopefully this opens up another door and keeps the ball and the and the momentum moving because um, uh, it's it's a, a, a just a brilliant story and uh, really privileged to to be in the centre of it.
2: Kevin, thank you so much for your time today and uh, really, really appreciate you sharing your story and certainly it's, uh, you know, we share the sentiment this is a story that more and more people, one, need to get involved in but I think most importantly need to understand, um, you know, kind of I think on, on our side around kind of, you know, just being able to unpack really what, what happens, you know, in terms of us, I think, putting ourselves in a situation where we're vulnerable and actually looking at our own history and our own understanding and sitting in that space rather than sitting in another space of, um, you know, kind of um, looking at things more differently than perhaps we should. So thank you very much for your time.
3: Really well put. My pleasure, gentlemen.
0: Thank you for listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at BAUpod.co. That's B A U P O D.